For those that are remaining in the auditorium and watching online, please take your Bibles with me, if you would, to Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23. Now we're going to have about seven sermons for Leviticus chapter 23. So for those of you that had hopes that we would quickly rush through the last few chapters of the book, we're going to slow down as we get to chapter 23. There's a number of feasts here that are prescribed for the nation of Israel, and we want to look at each one of them in turn as we walk through chapter 23 of the book of Leviticus. This morning, though, before we get into the annual feasts, there is a special day that is given to the nation of Israel. It is something that they've already been aware of coming out of the book of Exodus, but they are reminded here once again in Leviticus 23 regards to the Sabbath. And so our sermon this morning is titled Rest. I don't know how often you think about rest. Maybe you're thinking about rest right now. Maybe you have plans if you're seated in the back to get some rest even as I continue to talk. But we want to talk about rest this morning. So follow along, if you would, just the first three verses of Leviticus chapter 23, verses 1, 2, and 3 this morning. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, and this again is the pattern that we've been finding in the book of Leviticus. Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, these are the appointed feasts of the Lord, that you shall proclaim as holy convocations, they are my appointed feasts. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. This is the word of the Lord. Hopefully you were able to follow along in your own Bible. If you are new to us here at Grace and do not have one, there is one provided for you. It should be under the chairs there in front of you. And I believe it's on page 94 in that Bible. This idea of Sabbath, this idea of rest. What do you picture when you picture rest? For some of us, our picture in our mind's eye goes to the beach where we would like to be, and apparently some of us are headed as soon as I stop talking. You're just in your beach chair, eyes closed, sun beating down, waves rolling in. That's the picture of serenity, the picture of rest for you. Perhaps when you think of rest, you think of some of the images that we just saw in the We Nights video. Be careful if you come any time during the day around the time of their rest, because the lullabies that they play will put you to sleep even as you walk by the door to the wee nights. It's a very restful scene and perhaps you think of an infant in the arms of its mother or father and as it rests, it is completely at rest, not just physically, but there is a sense of calm and, and of protection and peace and perhaps a small smile goes over the face of that infant as they are perfectly at rest. Of course, for any of you that have had infants, that is not always the picture that takes place. But I think for me, as I was preparing for this sermon this morning, 
Probably the greatest picture of actual rest that pops into my mind is at the end of Mark's gospel, Mark chapter four and the end of that gospel. So on the screen, there is a picture of a Rembrandt. This is his only seascape. And if you want to hear an incredible story about this particular painting, you'll have to come to the Q&A. Can't promise that the story is better than going to the beach, but uh, for those of you that stick around after the time of fellowship for the Q&A, we'll tell a little story about this particular Rembrandt. But it's called A Storm on the Sea of the Galilee, and it is a picture of the disciples struggling against the storm, as we know. Jesus, after a day of teaching, uh, goes into the boat with his disciples on this particular occasion. Other occasion, he was not with them, but walks on the water to them. But on this particular occasion, he's in the boat with them. Probably can't see it from the screen. For many of you, it's just a glob up there. But if you search the picture, you will see Jesus in the boat asleep. Now imagine, if you would, the circumstances. They're in a storm. A storm of such intensity that the disciples, many of whom are seasoned fishermen who, who fish this particular body of water, this is not a body of water they're unfamiliar with, this is the Sea of Galilee, Lake Tiberias, they know these waters, and yet the storm whips up as apparently is very common on the Sea of Galilee, and they are so afraid as seasoned fishermen, they are afraid that they're not going to make it. They're afraid for their lives. And in the midst of that, what is Jesus doing? He's sleeping. Not just at rest in a physical way, but perfectly calm, perfectly at peace in the midst of a raging storm. And as we're going to see, the rest that God offers to his nation of Israel goes beyond the physical. The physical is a picture of a deeper spiritual reality. Perhaps for you, even your relationship with God does not produce the rest that it should. There seems to be a need in our hearts to do, to be busy, to have God like us, to perform for him so that he will love us more. And our Christianity has been largely not restful, but busy at times, chaotic. We're not sure that we quite believe and rest in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And so we don't have all the physical rest we would want, but deep in our souls, we don't necessarily have the spiritual rest that God offers. And so follow along, if you would, with me. I'm going to do something a little bit different this morning. My first point is the exposition of the text. But given the subject matter, I'm going to take my second point to trace the theme of rest from Genesis to Revelation. And then I'm going to answer the question that is probably on all of your minds this morning if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. So what about Sabbath now? What does that mean for us as Christians, the Lord's Day, Sunday, these types of things? Not that I'm going to try to enter into a debate, but we're going to try to look at some points from Scripture as it relates to that. And I'm going to do all of that and still hopefully be done on time. So buckle up your chair belts. Here we go. Notice then in the first place from the text, the priority of rest. 
God puts a premium on rest for his people. Perhaps, even as we've walked through the book of Leviticus up to this point, it has been your experience that it all sounds a little bit heavy. So I've got to remember all the five different types of offerings, which one to offer at which time. There's a lot of things that I can't do. There's heavy penalties for doing certain things. Perhaps your experience and even your perception of Leviticus before even going through it was that it's a book that's heavy and onerous. And thanks be to God for the cross of Jesus Christ. I don't have to worry about any of that. And so I burn through it real quick in my Bible reading plan and then I'm done. We don't need the book of Leviticus. But I think our perception is off because God here in this chapter, this one chapter alone, institutes a number of feasts. Some say five, some say seven. Seven's more attractive because it's the number of perfection. But however many feasts there are, they are annual feasts prescribed by the Lord, appointed feasts to give his nation a built-in period of rest on an annual basis. Not only that, but as we continue our move through the book of Leviticus, we will spend an, ex uh, an extended period of time on the full year of rest, the year of Jubilee. And so there were years of rest, one and seven, and then there was a seven times 749, and the year after that was another year of rest, the year of Jubilee. And so lest we think that the nation of Israel experienced this sort of onerous, heavy-handed, always kind of looking over your shoulder experience with God, that was not the perception that they ought to have had of him. And he prioritizes rest for them, builds it into the system. And under particular uh, uh, view here this morning is this weekly rest. It's the only weekly rest that is in this chapter. And it's a reminder once again of these rhythms that the nation of Israel to have of rest, where everyone, native Israelites, foreigners, and even animals were to rest, completely rest for one day in seven. So notice in verse two, in the first place, then under the priority of rest, rest and worship are not optional. And I've specifically and purposely tied worship in with this. Because again, we oftentimes think of the Sabbath as simply a cessation from work. And that is mostly what the word means. It means to cease. It, it, that has the idea certainly there. But, but bear in mind that at the tabernacle and eventually the temple, there were double burnt offerings on the Sabbath day morning, Saturday morning, and double burnt offerings on the Sabbath day evening. And so for the priest, it was at least double the work that they would normally do. It's not just a, a stopping work, a day to sort of breathe, kick your feet up. It is a day also of worship. It is not just designed to stop working for a day. It is designed that during a day, where we take a break apart from, or the nation of Israel took a break apart from daily routines and daily activities, their focus was to shift from all of the daily things that they needed to do to God. Rest and worship are linked together in the Sabbath, and they're not optional. Notice that there is a word there, appointed. God says these are the appointed feasts. These are not, we'll get around to it if we have time, feasts. God says to his nation of Israel, these are appointed by me. These are to be kept. In fact, the reason why the nation of Israel goes into captivity is because they did not. What is fascinating, and we'll get into this in more detail when we get into the, the year of Jubilee, to our knowledge from scripture, the nation of Israel never actually celebrated the year of Jubilee in their history. It's all laid out. They didn't do it. 
And so God says the land will have a Sabbath rest, a forced Sabbath rest because you did not follow my appointed feasts. But these are not to be optional. Rest and worship are not optional things in the economy of God. And so we find similar realities for us as believers. Our rest, though, is not primarily physical, but it is spiritual. It is not just that God wants us to, yes, we we sort of have an understanding that we are saved and we're hoping it all works out in the end, but we're not quite at rest in him. We have not found the heart of God to be gentle and lowly as Christ says that it is. And as a quick plug, best book of 2020, in my humble opinion, was Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. Get a copy of it, read it, check it out of our church library. If there isn't a copy there, talk to me, I'll see what I can do for you, although my copy is currently being used as well. Gentle and Lowly is the heart of God towards his people. Do we find that? Do we experience that? Are we here this morning actually at rest, actually worshiping him? without questions of whether or not he actually is accepting that worship. When you view God's face, when he thinks about you, what does his face look like? Are his eyebrows sort of down, a bit of a scowl? Do his eyes roll when he thinks of you? Do you believe yourself to be a perpetual disappointment to him? Or is it as when we watch some of those videos when servicemen and women come back from long tours of duty and they are reunited with their family and that is the face of God towards you? Do you believe him to be proud of you? This is the rest in Christ that God offers us and it is not optional for those who are believers in him. Notice in the second place this morning, rest and worship are to be a blessing. Notice what is appointed. These are the appointed what? The appointed feasts. Imagine in God's economy where there are annual, weekly, and whole years of feasting prescribed by God. For those that think of God as sort of this uh, infinite killjoy, this divine party pooper, this is not God, this is not who he is, and God not only institutes these things that are not optional, but they are feasts, they're to be a blessing, they're not a burden to the nation of Israel, feast, enjoy the blessings of God, he's taking them as we've seen previously to a land flowing with milk and honey, and when they get there, and they harvest every year, In the spring and again in the fall, they are to have these feasts, these different feasts of God. Some of them lasting for a whole week. Rejoicing in God and all that he has provided. We ought not to find gathering here this morning a burden. We ought not to find our relationship with God, this heavy weight on us that we can't bear up under. The weight has all been lifted by Christ. Perfect love casts out fear because fear has to do with judgment, John tells us. And since the judgment has all been meted out on Christ on our behalf, we can be free in Christ, free to enjoy the one who loves us, who made us and is remaking us in Christ. It's a blessing. Relationship with God ought to be a blessing to us, not a burden. Notice in the third place, rest and worship focus on God. 
These are the appointed, not optional, feasts, times of blessing of the Lord. Again, it's not just we're going to take a break from regular work. Maybe we'll hang out and watch some TV or binge YouTube or we'll just kind of veg. The idea is, as with fasting and other things instituted by God, it's, a, it's not just physical rest, but it's a shift of focus. So the energy, mental and otherwise, that we would expend on other things, one day in seven, can be shifted to God. Shifted to focus on Him. Shifted to enjoy Him. Thank Him. When's the last time we spent time with His children and with the things that He has made and just sat in awe of Him? We're busy. We're too busy. And where before, if we had to wait, that's what we did. We just waited. Now, all of us carry an instant distraction in our pockets. If we're waiting in line for more than 30 seconds, what happens? Out comes the phone. We were just at a play on Friday evening as a family, and during the intermission, those that were in their seats waiting for the second half of the play to start, almost all of them faces in their phones. It's just part of the culture. We have to wait for anything right now. We can be entertained all the time. And yet, how often do we just sit and enjoy the moments, enjoy the people we're with, enjoy the things that God has made, and do we thank him for that? God instituted a weekly event whereby the nation of Israel would shift their focus from themselves and their own things to him. Notice, fourthly, that rest and worship are communal. Did you catch that word? A holy convocation. We oftentimes think of convocation in the spring of the year as synonymous with the word graduation. So there's a convocation. We might get a fancy uh, invitation to somebody's convocation, the convocation exercises for a particular educational institution. The convocation can be that, but it's really any solemn gathering. But it's a gathering. It's a gathering for a serious purpose. And in this way, we see a number of the feasts, as we're going to see, required that at least the males come to the tabernacle. Not all of them, but some of them, to be sure. There's a communal aspect to this and a communal aspect to the Sabbath. We oftentimes think that the best way we can worship God is by getting alone. And for those of us that are wired as introverts, that seems like the best way to go about it. The only way I can rest is to get away from everybody else and just be by myself. Introverts of the world unite. And so there is certainly some benefit in those personal retreat times with the Lord, to be sure. But do not forget that God is community. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has designed us for community. And even in our rest and our shift of focus to him, there's a communal aspect to that. There's a need for community. There's a need for us to be together with one another. And so these feasts are holy convocations, holy gatherings. Gatherings of a solemn nature, of a serious nature. 
And the nation of Israel was to take them seriously as they gathered. And then notice, finally, rest and worship should be routine in verse 3. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest. There's a routine here. On a weekly basis, the seventh day, Saturday for the nation of Israel, was to be a day of rest. A day designed for physical rest, but also spiritual rest. A shift of focus as a community, away from making money and taking care of family and advancing our goals and purposes and dreams, and to shift our focus to the one who made us and the one to whom we owe all things. And it was to be routine. It was to be something that was done as a custom. It's interesting, in the Gospels, it tells us that Jesus went to the synagogue on the Sabbath as was his custom. As a young Jewish boy, he would have gone to synagogue every Sabbath. It was Jesus' custom to do that. And so there is a, a routine to this. There is always a downside to routine. We can treat things as sort of common, as sort of commonplace when they're routine. It's just what we do, and so we just do it without thinking about it. But routine's not bad. In fact, it's very good, provided that it has intentionality and purpose. Why are we taking off, or why is the nation of Israel commanded to take off one day in seven? So that they can actively shift their focus away from the things of this life to the things beyond this life. Away from the creation to the creator. Away from themselves to the one who made them. And so this is the Sabbath. Now we come to our walk through scripture. And so in the second place, we want to see this biblical theme of rest throughout scripture. It's fascinating. And I can only do a, a short walk through this. Where do we find this idea of rest, especially this sort of one day in seven, this routine rest? We start in the first place then with Genesis chapter two, verses one through three. In Genesis chapter one, we have the six days of creation. And chapter two of Genesis starts with God's resting on the seventh day. Now, does God need to rest? No, because God does not expend energy. That's not who our God is. He is all-powerful. And so when he uses that power, he does not lose any of it. It's not like a phone where the battery is depleting. And as we look at it rapidly going down to zero and we need to find a charging station, that is not who God is. God does not expend energy. God doesn't need rest, so why does he rest? He rests as a matter of principle, and he rests to set up what he is going to give to his nation of Israel as a one day in seven uh, creation mandate here. This idea of resting. What is also fascinating in Genesis 2, 1 through 3 is it does not follow the regular formula. In all of the first six days, it says in the, there was morning and there was evening the first day, morning and evening the second day. It doesn't say that about day seven. Day seven has a particular focus, and it is a shifting of focus away from the creative activity of God to enjoyment of that created activity. Almost as if God sets, steps back and, and, and views all that he has made and enjoys it and calls it very good. And so rest begins with God. It's his idea. And it's right out of the gate in the book of beginnings. In the second place then, Exodus chapter 31, verses 12 through 17, there's a number of places obviously in the Old Testament with the nation of Israel where Sabbath is mentioned. 
But I want to highlight Exodus 31, 12 through 17, in particular verse 17, because the Sabbath is given to the nation of Israel as a sign of the Mosaic covenant. Perhaps you're not aware, but all the covenants of God, the promises of God, come with an attending sign. So the Noahic covenant, a covenant he makes with the human race after the flood where he says, I will never again bring a flood of waters that will destroy the whole earth. What is the sign of that covenant? The sign of that covenant is the rainbow. And every time we see one, we can remember God's promise. Then he comes to Abraham in Genesis 12 and he promises to him a great nation. And what is the sign of that covenant? That all the males in the eighth day should be circumcised. Circumcision is a visible, tangible, repeatable sign of that promise of God. And so the sign of the Mosaic Covenant, the giving of the law, and that relationship with his old covenant people, his old promised people, is the Sabbath. God takes this very important. And so every seven days, the nation of Israel will be reminded of the covenant relationship that they have with God. And all that that means. It's the sign of the covenant with his old covenant people. Then in the third place, we come into the Gospels, and we see Jesus interacting with the Sabbath. And as you read Jesus' miracles, it almost seems like Jesus purposefully saves his miraculous activity for the Sabbath. Did you ever notice that? Clearly not all of Jesus' miracles are done on the Sabbath, but there's a lot of miracles done on the Sabbath. Almost as if Jesus is purposefully, intentionally challenging the current idea of what the Sabbath is, especially from the religious rulers at the time. And there are two things in particular. There's a number of passages there in your notes that are in the bulletin, but two things in particular I want to highlight. One is Jesus says to the Pharisees, especially those in the ruler of the synagogue in John's gospel, says, listen, Jesus, you have six days to do miracles, okay? Can you just not do miracles on the seventh? Can we just keep the Sabbath the way that we have always kept the Sabbath? Jesus says, the Sabbath was made for man, man was not made for the Sabbath. The religious rulers of the time had made the Sabbath so onerous, so overbearing, that it had long since been divorced from its, its idea of rest. Sabbath was not restful. All kinds of things had to be done prior to Friday night at sundown. All kinds of preparations had to be made. So he didn't violate the Sabbath. And not just a violation of the Sabbath, because if you actually search the Old Testament, there's very little prescriptions for how to keep the Sabbath. The Pharisees of the time, and even Orthodox, Orthodox Jews to this day, have a whole laundry list of ways that they keep the Sabbath. In fact, when I was working in uh, Toronto, property values among the Jewish community had to do with proximity to the synagogue, not the actual property itself. Because if you were a certain distance to the synagogue, you didn't have to take extra things, extra sort of steps in order to get the synagogue on Sabbath. Fascinating, even to this day, 2022. This idea of keeping the Sabbath in these ways. And Jesus says, hang on a second. Man was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is not the thing. The Sabbath was made for man. The Sabbath was intended to give people rest. It was intended to shift their focus back to my Father. It was intended to be a blessing, not a burden. What else does Jesus say in the Gospels? The second saying of note is, Jesus says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. He picks grain on the Sabbath. I've read some of the Talmud and the Mishnah. You've read some of it, perhaps you are aware of these things, these extra writings that Jews came up with. 
as part of my master's degree, I had to read some of this stuff, and there's actually pages and pages of debate over the Sabbath. If you ever are, are struggling from insomnia, give me a call. I'll send you some pages from the Mishnah. You'll be asleep in seconds. There's actually pages of debate. If you're walking through a field of standing grain on the Sabbath and not walking too far because there was a certain kilometer radius that you could walk on the Sabbath, and while you're walking through the fields of standing grain, you happen to put your hand in your pocket, and in that pocket you have an open-bladed knife. As you remove your hand from your pocket, the open-bladed knife happens to come out of the pocket inadvertently, and as it's falling to the ground, it cuts off an ear of grain. Question, have you harvested on the Sabbath? And I kid you not, there are pages of debate from the rabbis. Yes, no, maybe, not sure, yes, no. This is what was around at Second Temple Judaism and continues to this day. Jesus says, no, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is the Sabbath rest. And as we're going to see in Luke's gospel, he is the year of Jubilee. <laughs> Then we come to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. It was read for us during the liturgy. We find our rest in Christ. And those of us that, in our, uh, that are in Christ, the book of Hebrews, the author of the book of Hebrews says, can rest from our works as God rested from his, as Jesus rested from his. How long has, have you attempted to earn your salvation? whether prior to it or after you have obtained it or believe you have through Christ. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're still trying to earn your way into God's favor. Maybe if I do these things long enough in the right way, God will love me. I'm here to remind you as I am every Sunday, God already loves you and there is nothing you could do or not do that would cause him to love you less. And please understand that when Jesus Christ the righteous was stretched out on the cross at Calvary bearing the wrath of God for sin, that was well before you were born. Jesus died for all of your sins, past, present, and future. Jesus did not die for a future, cleaned up version of you. He died for you to make you like him. Rest in him. Stop the treadmill. So often, that is how we view our relationship with God. And the writer of the book of Hebrews reminds us that we find our rest in Christ. And then our benediction is Matthew 11, 28 through 30, and also Revelation 14, 13, and Revelation 21, 1 to 7. What a beautiful passage of Scripture that reminds us that there is a Sabbath rest yet for the people of God, mentioned in Hebrews 4, mentioned by Jesus Christ, find your rest in me, and told to us by the Apostle John in the book of Revelation of Jesus Christ, there is a day of rest coming, a time when there will be no more mourning, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more suffering. When all will be at rest, not just a one day in seven physical rest, but a complete rest, complete calm and peace and serenity, trust in the one who has made all things and has made all things new, sin gone, perfection present, God with us. This is the theme of rest from the beginning of Scripture through the end. And so as we close this morning, we find rest for the Christian. In the first place, we see that we are already at rest in Jesus, Luke 4, 16 through 21. We read from the psalm this morning as part of the, or as part of the liturgy. 
the, the passage that Jesus quotes, he gets up in the synagogue and he reads this passage of scripture from Isaiah 61, I believe. And he talks about this day that was promised by the prophet of Isaiah when the blind would receive their sight and the lame would walk and all the effects of sin and all that causes us to be at disrest, all that causes us to be exhausted, well, all of that will be gone. He proclaims the day of the Lord and in the middle of the reading, what does he do? He closes the scroll and sits down. It's curious. Jesus says, today these things are fulfilled in your hearing. I am the rest that is promised. I am the Sabbath and the Lord of it. I am the year of Jubilee. I am rest for your soul. I am the one who can gently, slowly, graciously, but certainly remove you from the treadmill of good works. I am the one that can change your perception of my Father, who, by the way, is exactly like me because we are one. God does not love you because Jesus changed his mind about you. God loves you, loves you. That's why he sent Jesus in the first place. So often we get this view that the God of the Old Testament, the, God, the, the, the Old Covenant God, is sort of this angry God like the gods of old, who was going to smite us. And Jesus steps in and says, hang on a second, Dad, don't do that. We fail to realize it's God the Father that sent God the Son. He doesn't love you because of Jesus. He loves you, therefore he sent Jesus. We love him, why? Because he first loved us. If we are in Jesus this morning, we ought to be at rest. Not just physically, but in all that that word rest means. To walk through death, to walk through diagnoses that are not favorable to us, to walk through destruction of different things, to walk through all that life has with all of its suffering. And to remain at peace because my focus, my anchor, my life is God. And salvation is not what I can get from him. Salvation is him. Quickly, in the second place then, the Sabbath technically then does not apply to us as believers. Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Let's go there as some of you are quickly fading into rest. Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 17. I think it's noteworthy. Paul says the church at Colossae, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Interesting that the food laws, which are clearly done away with in Christ, something that Peter saw directly in Acts 10, are lumped in with the Sabbath. Notice verse 17, these, all of these things, including the Sabbath, are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And then Romans 14, 5, let no one judge you 
based on your observance or non-observance of any days that are special. What does that mean? That means, in brief, despite much writings and even confessions of the faith, as great as those are, the reality is that, technically speaking, the Sabbath or the Lord's Day, as we sometimes call it now on the Sunday, does not directly apply to us as believers. The reality is we find our rest in Jesus seven days out of seven, not one day in seven. And for a fuller discussion of what that looks like, stick around for the Q&A, which will get started in about a half an hour. Third point, notice that the Sabbath points to something greater, Hebrews 4, 9, and 10. That one day in seven was a brief glimpse of what was to come. Can you imagine your life if you didn't have to work? If you imagine your life if your focus was always and only on God. No distractions, no competing desires, just enjoying the creator of the universe who is love and compassion and gentleness and goodness and kindness and mercy and grace and holiness and righteousness and justice and truth and love. What a world that would be. That world is coming. He's going to make that world as he made it at the first. He will remake it at the last. But notice in the fourth place that the Sabbath points to someone greater, and that is Jesus Christ, the righteous. Come to me, he says. All of you who are weary and laden down, crushed under the weight of the burden of other people's expectations on you, your own expectations on yourself, your failures and your regrets and your addictions as we sang about, the burden of all of those things, Jesus says, come to me and in me you will find rest. Down to the level of your soul rest in me and in me alone. And so our response this morning is, are we resting then in Jesus. Do we believe, do we actually believe that when God says all of the penalty for all of our sins are on Christ, do we believe that? Do we believe our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, his last word from the cross, it is finished? Do we believe that this morning? Do we believe that to be true? Or do we think there's more that I need to do? It has always fascinated me the parables on forgiveness. The parable of the prodigal son, which should probably be called the prodigal God, as our brother Tim Keller has pointed out, and also the unforgiving servant. Reread those parables. What is fascinating about those individuals' understanding of forgiveness they don't get forgiveness, but it's for two reasons, not just one. They don't understand forgiveness because they do not appreciate the level to which they have been forgiven. But in both those cases, the prodigal son, his plan is, I'm going to serve my father 
And if I serve my father, I might be able to pay him back. And the unforgiving servant, vehemence with which he goes after a fellow servant to collect a much smaller, like an infinitesimally smaller a debt than the debt he owed the king. Why does he want to collect that money? You can't pay $7 billion back. You can't do it. But I'm going to try. We don't understand forgiveness because we don't understand how much we've been forgiven and we don't understand forgiveness because we think we can earn it. And I'm here to remind all of us, myself included, this morning, you can't earn God's grace. If you could, it wouldn't be grace. But God says you are forgiven in Christ. Do we believe that? And in the midst of any of the storms that may come our way, are we at rest? Because the gospel is God. And if we have him, he is all we need. As I've said too many times to count, God will often bring us to the place where we, he is all we have to remind us that he is all we ever need. Let's look to him in prayer this morning. Father, I thank you this morning for your great grace to us. Thank you for this passage of scripture that is so much packed into it. This priority that you place on rest and this theme of rest throughout the entirety of scripture. Rest is your, one of your many gifts to us. It's your idea. And it's designed not just so that we do not wear ourselves out cause ourselves to collapse from exhaustion, but it's designed to shift our focus, to take us aside, to spend time with others who make you a priority, to be encouraged and challenged by them, to in community shift our focus from ourselves, our own pursuits, our own insecurities, and come and just bask in your glory. And then, Father, for us to understand here this morning that as your son could rest in the midst of the storm, so too can we, because our rest is not primarily physical, but our rest is spiritual. Our rest is to be found in Jesus Christ, the righteous. And so, Father, we thank you in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen.